Well, if you would again, uh, take out your Bible. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 14. And we will be reading uh, the whole chapter. Genesis chapter 14. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedolaomar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Beersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shembir, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedolaomar. In the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedolaomar and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Asheroth Karanaim, and Zuzim in Ham, Emim in Shava Kirathaim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and all also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim, with Kedolaomar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Erok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley, valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their provisions, and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living in the, by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in the house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kedolamar and the kings were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, 
I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I should not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten, and the share of the men who went with me, that Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this reading of your word. We ask, O oh God, that you would be with us in the preaching of your word. Be with this, your servant. May the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart be pleasing before you. May what is spoken be true. And may we understand and apply this text to your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most uh, mysterious figures in all of the scriptures is a man named Melchizedek. The writer of Hebrews tells us that he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. He came down from Salem to meet Abram in the king's valley after the slaughter of the marauding armies from the east who had kidnapped Abram's nephew, Lot. Melchizedek, Hebrews goes on to say, resembles the Son of God and continues as a priest forever. He came to Abram as a priest king and blessed him, and Abram paid him a tithe of all of his captured war treasure. David in Psalm 110 references Melchizedek as a figure of the Messiah who was to come. Now we know very little about Melchizedek. He only shows up in the Old Testament two places, here in Genesis chapter 14 and in Psalm 110. We only know, that other than this, we know he's a type, he's a shadow of the great king priest that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Messiah, is the perfect priest king. In fact, Jesus holds the threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. As a priest, Christ offered himself up as a sacrifice on the cross in order to satisfy divine justice. Jesus has reconciled us to God the Father and is even now making continual intercession on our behalf. And as a king, Jesus is subduing us to himself. He is ruling us and defending and restraining, conquering all his and our enemies. Just as Melchizedek's name means the king of righteousness, Jesus brings perfect righteousness. Melchizedek was the king of Salem, which is a derivative of shalom in Hebrew, which means peace. Jesus came to bring peace, reconciling God and man, restoring and renewing. This promise of restoration and salvation has come in Genesis. We've seen this uh, being hinted at all throughout the text. and is now here again in chapter 14. In the account of Abram's rescue of Lot, and then, again, in the greeting of this this shadowy character, a man who is identified with God Most High, a follower and priest of the Lord, Yahweh, Abram's God, the one true God. 
This hint of peace to come occurs, interestingly enough, within the context of war. The initial defeat and then the subjugation of the kings of the Jordan Valley, their subsequent rebellion, and then their disastrous defeat. But then, the incredible and daring rescue led by Abram, who not only saves Lot, his nephew, but in fact saves all the kings of the valley. Now this war between the kings of the east and the kings of the west, which is recorded here, really sets the background for what is the second of three scenes which involve Abram and Lot. We've already observed there's a contrast between Abram and Lot. Lot is passive. Lot is impotent. He's somewhat somewhat incompetent. Abram is bold. He's courageous. He's a leader as he leads men to rescue Lot against incredible odds. So we begin our study in verse 1. It says, In the days of Amphrael, king of Shinar... No, more literally, this should, it could be read this way. And it was at that time these four kings made war. At that time. What it's doing is referencing what we read in chapter 13. These four kings of the east had come and defeated five kings in the west. And so what is being presented really is background information which had occurred at some at the same time as the separation of Abram and Lot, which we read in chapter 13. So these eastern kings had defeated and subjugated these kings of the Jordan Valley and for 12 years had required them to pay a yearly tribute. But... In the thirteenth year, the king of Sodom and the others with him refused to pay their tribute, and so they rebelled against the kings from the east. If in fact this is occurring at the same time that Lot and Abram separated, then it's not long after after Lot had moved to the valley that he had become ensnared in rebellion and war. And so Ketelamar who seems to be the chief king, and his three allies respond to this rebellion, these rebellious kings in a year's time. It says in the 14th year. That is, the 14th year after they had initially subjugated them, Ketoleomar and his allies marched toward the west and to the kings of the valley. Now this description, which begins in verse 5, This is of their march toward the west and the other tribes and nations which they defeated on their way. So here's the point. This was a very powerful alliance of armies defeating everyone in their path as they come to deal with the kings of the valley who had rebelled against them. This list of people and places runs from north to south along what is called the King's Highway in the Transjordan, that is, the other side of the Jordan. This is also the most natural route as one who is coming from the east. You would not go straight towards the west across the open desert. Uh, That would be like a death sentence. (laughs) 
Now you would follow the rivers, you would go north, and then you would come back and head south. And so as, as we see this list of people after people after people who are being defeated by this army on their way, there's, this, there's a sense of foreboding as they make their way to the valley of Siddim. These armies of the east are formidable. They're destroying, defeating everyone in their path. Now, you, we want to keep in mind the power and the might of these armies because this is a small, this may seem like a small detail, but this is actually really important. Because later, Abram will bravely and incredibly lead his men in pursuit of that powerful force and defeat them. So keep that in your mind the power of this army. You'll also note the mention of one particular people group, and that is the Amorites who were swept up in Ketelemar's war campaign. This may actually explain why they made an alliance with Abram and helped him rescue Lot and defeat Ketelemar. And so the forces from the east arrive at the king's valley. They join together in array for battle in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea, or what we know as the Dead Sea. So this is the area where this battle is to take place. And notice too, and the text points this out, that the battle is four kings against five. But, as with their earlier conquests, the Eastern Alliance easily prevails against the hapless kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. Moses, uh, as the writer of Genesis, explains how the battlefield was oriented. It was, it was full of bitumen pits, that is, tar pits. Some, and w- some of the men of Sodom and Gomorrah fell into these as they fled for the bat- from the battle. You see, the battle was a complete rout. In the middle of the valley, well, this is where they're from. This is their home. They were very aware of these bitumen pits, and yet they were running away. So it may not be that they sort of fell into the pits as much as they cast themselves into the pits, exchanging one form of death for another kind of death. Either way, what's in view here is the troops were going into the pits, not the kings. But they were all fleeing the battle because they were just absolutely being wiped out. And once again, we see the invisible hand of God's providence at work conspiring here against the wicked men of Sodom and bringing about their absolute and utter defeat. And so as the men of the as the rest of the men fled to the hill country, the enemy pillaged Sodom and Gomorrah, taking all of their possessions and all of their provisions and their people, including the women and children. But who else had taken up residence in Sodom? Lot, Abram's nephew. And he too was taken along with all of his possessions and people. And so here again we see the folly of Lot on display. First, Lot had chosen to settle himself in the well-watered valley. Now, perhaps this is a sensible decision. You know, if you have uh, animals to be watered, this would be a place to go. But he did so near these wicked cities. 
But he, he progresses in this. He progresses from choosing to live in the valley to camping near Sodom, to living within the city walls of Sodom, and then later he will even respect the people of Sodom. But now, because he's a resident of Sodom, he too is swept up in their defeat. But there there is actually an irony in this account. Because Lot is among them, Lot will prove to be the undoing, actually, of Kedalaramar. You see, if the king from the east had been simply satisfied with the goods of Sodom and not taking human flesh, he may have been unhindered in his conquest. But, as the account emphasizes here, the text says Lot was Abram's nephew. We're reminded of this. See, Abram was not going to let his nephew be taken without a fight. So verse 13, as Lot and his household are captured, uh, one of his household manages to escape and makes his way to Abram and tells him all the things that had taken place. Here again, we, have, we see the hand of God at work, ruling and overruling events. Now, Abram was at this time living near the oaks of Mamre. Mamre was an Amorite. He was an ally of Abram, along with his two brothers. So when Abram hears what had happened to Lot, that Lot had been taken captive, he musters his trained men who were from his household. And the Bible tells us there were 318 of them. It's a pretty specific number. 318 men. Notice that it was not the stolen possessions which drew uh, Abram into the battle. It was because his nephew had been taken. Verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive. This is the reason that, Lot get, or that Abram gets involved. Because Lot has been taken. It may be that had Ketaleomar taken only the goods but left Lot alone, that Abram may not have got involved. Well, sorry you lost your stuff, Lot, but... But Lot was family. And Ketalamar's assault on Lot's person was tantamount to an attack on Abram himself. And so the right and honorable thing to do was to go and rescue Lot and to destroy his enemies. There's a lesson here for us, I think. See, the body of Christ sought to protect and serve one another. Injustice against any part of the body ought to be dealt with by the others. Because we're family, we ought to look out for one another. Note also the fact that Abram had 318 reliable men to send into battle. Imagine that. 318 men at his disposal who could be sent into battle. This underscores Abram's substantial wealth and power. All from God. God had been blessing him. Lot was fortunate to have such a benefactor to rescue him, wasn't he? Abram was to take these men. He was to pursue as far to pursue the enemy as far as Dan, which is, by the way, a later name for an area which is in northern Palestine near Mount Hermon. 
So here was Abram's plan. His plan was to take his troops, to divide his forces, to move in at night and launch a surprise attack against these unsuspecting kings. That place, um, the, uh, the, his servants went and did this and routed the army, the army of Catalamar and then pursued them as far north as Hoba, which is about 60 miles north of Damascus. So imagine from as far south as the Dead Sea all the way to Damascus. This is how far they're pursuing the, this defeated army. With the enemy kings defeated, Abram and his servants bring back all all the possessions. They capture everything back. But most importantly, he brought back his relative Lot and Lot's household. That he was able to conquer the enemy with a relatively small band must be ascribed to the favor of God. Abram had not only rescued Lot... But he had recovered all possessions. He had rescued the whole city. Even the wicked kings of the valley and their people were receiving the blessing on account of Abram. Even they got rescued. Abram was under no obligation to have rescued anyone else other than his nephew. And yet he took this opportunity to do good to those who were otherwise wicked. In this way, Abram reflects something of the character of God. God does good for the just and the unjust. This is called common grace. Matthew 5.45, For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. God does good to the believer and to the unbeliever. And so should we. We should do good to all. Well, after Abram's victory, the king of Sodom came out to meet him at the valley of Sheba, which is, the uh, text indicates to us, the king's valley. Uh, the king's valley is an area east of what will later be called Jerusalem. I want you to notice something about the greeting, which will contrast the king of Sodom with the king of Salem. It says that the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram. He went out to meet Abram. The expression to come out in Hebrew is ambiguous. It can mean to greet. It can also mean to confront I think the meaning here is confront, and we'll see in a minute why. Uh, The same word was used to describe the king of Sodom's marching out for war. He confronted the armies from the east. In addition to that, based on the demands he will make later, it does seem that confrontation is what's in view. The king of Sodom makes, makes incredible demands, really, of Abram. And so here we have the the humiliated king of Sodom. He comes out to meet the victor and his rescuer. And he is at first silent and empty-handed. This is the opposite of Melchizedek, who who himself was not rescued nor involved in this war. 
In fact, when the king of Sodom does finally speak, he only makes demands of Abram which indicate his personal preoccupation with the spoils of war and a general lack of gratitude. You don't really see him thanking Abram for anything. Really, what he shows is the wickedness of Sodom. And so I'm persuaded that the king of Sodom came out to confront Abram concerning his people and his goods. But as the king of Sodom comes out, and imagine the scene, our gaze is suddenly shifted to somebody else, to, to another king. We turn away from this wicked king of Sodom and we look to this Melchizedek. And Melchizedek comes joyfully. And he comes bearing gifts. He comes with refreshment for the victorious army of Abram. The proximity of the king's valley to Jerusalem may explain the sudden appearance of Melchizedek, whose name means uh, the, the king of righteousness. He is identified as the king of Salem, literally the king of peace. And it says that he was a priest of God most high. The king, the great king and priest, came bearing bread and wine. Again, this is is in contrast to the king of Sodom, who brings nothing but confrontation and demands to Abram, his rescuer. And the bread and wine is mentioned is symbolic of a great feast. Think about this. Mel- Melchizedek comes with great joy and he presents a banquet to Abram and his men. He has brought them a royal brain- banquet. Now consider for a moment a connection to the Lord's Supper. What do we have in the Lord's Supper? We have bread and we have wine. And this points us to the great feast which we will enjoy in new heavens and new earth. And so Melchizedek has come serving refreshments for these warriors who are returning from battle. Melchizedek being a priest king is a type for Christ. He's a foreshadowing of what was to come. He was the king of Salem, which is Jerusalem. He was a superior to Abram the ancestor of Israel. The greater had come to bless and to feed the lesser. And Abram is grateful. Verse 19 and 20 says that he blessed Abram in this way. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. God, the creator and the sustainer of the universe, had greatly blessed Abram. And it was by the hand of God that the enemies had been delivered to him. These unbelievable odds, this this incredible army from the east, which was defeated by this small band of 318 men of Abram's, was because God had defeated them. He had handed the enemy over to them. And and by the way, you see this in other places in Scripture. How God uses 300 some odd men to defeat great armies. Because this is what God does. God delivered them into His hands. 
as the priest king Melchizedek mediated God's blessing upon Abram, giving strength to the promises that Yahweh had made earlier. In blessing God most high, Melchizedek was highlighting God's goodness and granting divine benefits upon his subjects. And Abram responds to this provision. He responds to the blessings from Melchizedek. How? By paying him a tithe. A tenth. This was was a one-time tithe of the plunder of war. This was not the annual tithe to the priest. This was a a one-time tithe. Now, tithing was an ancient practice in the biblical world. In fact, what we see is that Ketelamar's tribute, the tribute that he 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 had come to collect his tribute from these rebellious kings, the tribute that Ketelamar thought was supposed to go to him, it goes to God instead. Isn't that that marvelous? His tribute was paid as a tithe to the Lord. Melchizedek had come to celebrate Abram's victory as the rescuer of God, and Abram recognized him as the legitimate priest-king of his God. Now, as I mentioned before, Melchizedek is only... We only see him uh, two times in the Old Testament. We see him here in Genesis 14, and then again in Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is a clear messianic psalm. Psalm 110 looks forward to a future, an ideal king who will be a priest as well. A priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now Hebrews 6 says that he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, the writer of Hebrews, in saying he had no father and mother, beginning nor end, is making a typological argument. He's making a typological argument based on the silence of Genesis, not on whether or not he actually had parents. Melchizedek, then, was a copy of the heavenly priesthood of Jesus, which was yet to come. He is like the Son of God. And so Melchizedek was a foreshadowing of things to come. Now there are some who consider Melchizedek to be a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God. This is, of course, possible. It is possible that this was uh, Jesus uh, prior to his incarnation, but it does not necessarily have to be the case. So I'm not going to be dogmatic on that point. Could be, doesn't have to be. But when when Psalm 110 speaks of the ideal priest-king, he is in the order of Melchizedek. And so what is in view is a shadow which points to the reality that is Jesus Christ himself, who is the perfect priest, who is the perfect king. Christ is the most excellent priest. He is preeminent over all. No one had arisen as an equal to the dignity and excellence of Melchizedek until Christ comes. And even David, who wrote Psalm 110, acknowledges this future king as his Lord. In the superiority of his priesthood. He is the superior king. He's the superior priest. And so what is in view here 
is the eternal nature of this class of priest and king of which Melchizedek is a foreshadowing and a copy of the heavenly priesthood of Christ, the Son of God. And just as Melchizedek had come and blessed Abram, providing him food, providing blessings from God, and Abram gave him a tithe as a lesser to a greater, so it is that Christ has provided for His people a great provision and blessing. Jesus came to provide salvation for His people through His own sacrifice as the great high priest. As the eternal priest of God, Jesus has reconciled us to God, being the only mediator between God and man. He also intercedes for us, for He has secured our salvation as a guardian king. In Christ, we are able to come boldly before before God's throne throne of grace. And so Melchizedek is a, is a shadowy type of the great king, of the great priest who is to come through the line of Abram. But as Melchizedek feeds and blesses Abram, the king of Sodom, so remember there's this contrast, the king of Sodom, like the wickedness of the world, came making demands. Isn't that what the wickedness of the world does? They demand things. Verse 21. Look at verse 21. Here's the demand. Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. The king of Sodom's address to Abram reflects an ungrateful heart. This stands in contrast to the gratitude which Abram shows to Melchizedek in giving his tithe. Now, the proposal of the king may seem fair and perhaps even generous. I mean, he has given him everything, right? What's the problem, you may ask? What is wrong with the king's proposal? Well, it's the king's audacity and attitude. You see, it's the victor, not the defeated king, who has the right to stipulate the disposition of the spoils of war. Abraham was the one who should get to decide these things, not the king of Sodom. Abram was the one who risked his life. Abram is the one who risked his fortune rescuing him. Quite frankly, the king of Sodom had no right to make this demand at all. Abram was to decide what to do with the goods. And so the king of Sodom, he didn't come greeting Abram with great joy. He wasn't thankful. He didn't say, thank you so much for what you've done in rescuing. He comes begrudgingly demanding how things were to go. This is the problem. But Abram wisely anticipates what may come from this. If he were to accept the offer, the king could say that he had enriched Abram at his own expense. Yeah, see that Abram guy? It's because he took all my stuff. (laughs) There's a sense in which Abram would be obligated to him. And so the humiliated king of Sodom was deceptively attempting to manipulate the whole situation for for his own good. And so here's how Abram responds. He says, I have lifted my hands to the Lord. God, Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. 
the lifting up of hands implies the taking of a solemn oath before God. We we do this right when you you know you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Raise your hand. Abraham had lifted his hands to God. He had made a solemn oath before God, and he echoes the name God or the name of God that Melchizedek had used in his blessing. And here's the oath. Here's the oath which he swore. That I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Down to the tiniest and most worthless of items which belong to the king. Even a small little thread, you know, a little, you know, little, little I've always got threads coming out of my buttons on my coat, right? Even, even a little thread. It's worthless. Who cares about a thread? Nope, nope, I'm not going to take that. Or, you know, a sandal, if you have sandals, they break, you know. Oh, it's, it's worthless now, right? I don't even want that. I don't even want the sandal strap. I'm going to take nothing from you. Even the most worthless of items will take nothing. By the so Abram affirmed his trust in the Lord. It was God who was blessing him. It was God who was providing for him. He will not be indebted to any foreign kings. No man would be able to say that they had helped Abram become rich. All that Abram was to have, he was to be able to say, this comes from God. God has given this to me, not man. Abram would take nothing from the king of Sodom except for the food the young men had eaten. But though he would take nothing from himself, he did, this didn't mean that others couldn't take of the spoils. And he says, so he says, let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. Abram's Amorite allies were to get a distribution of the goods for their efforts. It's okay for them to take it. This emphasizes Abram's fairness and generosity. He ensured that those who supported him got what was rightfully theirs. But he was also not willing to allow any man to have anything over him. As we come to a close today, we are reminded that in the Christian life, we are a lot like Lot in need of rescue. God in His providence provided the rescue Lot needed such that even the wicked men of Sodom benefited from this common grace. Humble and generous Abram was committed to his relative, or as he calls him, his brother. He risks his own life, he risks his own fortune in order to rescue him. In this way, Abram embodies the scriptural principle of loving neighbor more than himself. In a similar way, Christ died for his spiritual brothers and sisters, even as we were yet sinners. The Christian has been justified by his blood, has been saved from the wrath of God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the great prophet, priest, and king, when the fullness of time had come, was sent forth by the Father, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the condemnation of the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Our Redeemer and our Lord commands us and, and disciples us to love one another as He has loved us. 
And so the Father of Jesus Christ is called to embody this in life, a life of self-sacrifice, of loving neighbor, of considering others greater than ourselves. Abram rescued Lot at great risk to himself. His war was not to protect the promised seed or even the promised land. And we'll see that Abram was growing in his understanding that God is his shield. God is his defender. Nevertheless, Abram was not a pacifist, nor was he passive. When Lot was unjustly kidnapped, he commenced on an all-out military campaign to rescue him. Think of the great risk that Abram took. And he did so against extreme odds. Is it still in your mind how powerful that army was? These were extreme odds, and yet Abram, he does not cower before the four kings who had just conquered multitudes upon multitudes of people. He doesn't, oh, I don't know what I can do about this. No, he, he risks himself and all that he has against an alliance which had ravaged five kings. Now consider the original audience of this. The, the Exodus generation, they, they would have been greatly encouraged by this. You mean the God who rescued us out of Egypt? He did that? They would have been greatly encouraged by this. And you know what? We should be too. We should be encouraged by this. That even powerful nations can be defeated by the faithful and the righteous as they trust in God, the God who goes before them. As Melchizedek pointed out, it was God who had delivered Abram's enemies into his hand. Abram was the rescuer of Lot, but he himself was not the promised Savior. This, in fact, is made clear with the appearance of one greater than himself, this mysterious Melchizedek. And this priest king himself was a type and a shadow of the greater who is still to come. The only redeemer of God's elect. The rescuer of sinners himself. The Lord Jesus Christ. Who was and continues to be God and man. Two natures in one person forever. Christ is the greater Abraham. He rescues his brothers as Abraham rescued Lot. Christ is the greater Melchizedek. A superior order of priests greater than that of Levi who offers blessings to God's people and provides a feast to weary Christian soldiers. The promise which had been made to Abraham that he would be made a great nation and through him all the nations will be blessed is confirmed and established forever in Christ. Abram had to wait patiently, not seeing with his eyes but believing by faith But he's given glimpses, isn't he? He's given a glimpse of this promise in the priest king from Salem. Hebrews 6, 19 and 20 says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the interplace behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God's promises are sure. God's character is unchanging. He has guaranteed with an oath upon himself. And Christ is the great king and the great priest who is promised. And so I invite you, beloved congregation, find your hope and your rest 
in Him. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word and for the promises and the hints and the shadows of the Old Testament which we see come to full fruition in Christ. We thank You that Jesus is the great High Priest. He is the awesome and powerful King. He is the one who defeats all His and our enemies. Help us, God, to rest, to be refreshed in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us also, Father, to not be those who are simply passive, though. As we rest and trust in the Lord, may we not also be those who just sit around doing nothing. May we love our neighbor as ourselves. May we, may we consider others greater than ourselves. May we serve one another and serve the world to the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.